the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic's Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome, folks, once again uh, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, We always enjoy hooking up with you here on 94.9 FM and AM 950, the word in Orlando, Florida, of course. And as always, Alan Dempsey does the engineering for us, and Andrew Herdliska does the producing. Uh, My guest in the first segment, Jason Romano, former ESPN producer. And uh, we're going to talk about his book. It's a good one. Good read. Live to Forgive. Moving forward, when those we love hurt us, uh, Jason, thanks for plugging in. I'm so glad that we could visit. Pat, it's an honor to be on with you. Great to talk to you. Thank you for having me. A, uh, a citizen of Orlando, Florida, uh, the great Daryl Strawberry did the foreword for your book. How did that come about? Yeah, so, and, and that's uh, a whole, you know, we could spend an hour just talking about Daryl. But I, at my time at ESPN, I worked there almost 17 years. I got to meet a lot of uh, amazing people, people who were my heroes as a kid growing up, and Daryl was one of them. And I spent a day with Daryl Strawberry back in 2009 when he was in Bristol promoting his book, and we just stayed connected. And it's funny because that day that we spent together in Bristol at ESPN, I wanted to talk about the 1986 Mets, and it's funny because we never talked baseball. We talked about we talked about struggles. We talked about his addiction and his falls and kind of uh, how God had redeemed him and helped him in his journey. And then we talked about my dad, uh, who at that time was struggling uh, mightily with his alcoholism and uh, just really having a tough time, tough go at life. And so we just spent time talking. He encouraged me. Uh, I asked him questions about his addiction just to kind of try and learn a little bit from the other side about what was happening with my father. And we just stayed stayed in touch. And uh, we were able to reconnect about a year ago, a little over a year ago, uh, at a conference up here in Hartford, Connecticut. And I told him I was writing a book. I told him about my dad and the sort of happy ending that the book has in many ways with my relationship with him. And he said that he would love to help me promote it. And so I went a little further and said, would you be interested in, you know, writing an endorsement? He said, anything you need, let me know. So I went one step further and asked him if he'd consider writing the foreword, and he said, yes. Like I said, anything you need, Jason, I'm here for you. And I said, great. And that's kind of how it came about. And uh, it still blows me away to see his name on the cover of my first book because he was the guy whose poster was hanging up on my wall when I was 10 years old. So it was pretty cool. Jason, you break your book down into four parts. Uh, Part one is simply called Feeling the Pain. Uh, What are you covering in that uh, part of your book? The feeling, the pain is sort of, and it's something, Pat, that I didn't like know this was happening as I was going through it. It's something that as I looked back and sort of remembered 
things that I went through in my time, the four parts are kind of what we broke it down in as far as leading us to a process of forgiveness. So feeling the pain is literally going to a point where we have to understand that when we're going through difficult times with someone, there's pain there. And a lot of times we don't know how to, how to you know, what to do with that pain. Uh, and in many ways, it's very confusing pain. You know, for myself, at a very young age, I didn't understand what was happening with my dad. Uh, it wasn't until I was 14 or 15, as I wrote in the book, about an, a time when I started really discovering um, some bitterness and some anger that I had towards the decisions my father had made. And what I've learned through that is looking at circumstances, allowing us to feel the pain is really the first step in going forward and understanding that it's okay uh, to be upset. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to feel that, you know, that bitterness that we have, Um, you know, really just processing it starts with that feeling and understanding that it's okay to have this. So that's where that comes from. And then you get into the second part which is called evaluating the trauma. Uh, explain that to us. Yeah, so evaluating the trauma was something that, you know, it's, it's first acknowledging that we're feeling the pain and that there's trauma there, right? And then it's understanding that this trauma exists and there needs to be something done about it. Uh, you know, evaluating as we, as we grow older is something that we tend to, we tend to do especially as men just in our lives, we start to look at where we are, you know, as we become um, young men growing from high school to college and then eventually into, you know, a life of getting married and having kids. And it's really about looking at our heart, allowing um, people in our lives to help us in evaluating this. Um, even in some ways there's, there's, you know, counseling involved, depending on what type of therapy that might be there too. And then it's really understanding that if there's trauma there, it's creating boundaries. Um, it's not allowing yourself, even though the, the trauma is there, it's evaluating it and saying, wait a minute, this is something that isn't healthy, that isn't good. As I started to get older with my dad uh, and seeing him continue to, to really spiral downward in his, um, in his drinking and in his life, I had to create boundaries in my life to protect myself, to protect my family my wife, my daughter, from being influenced and uh, in many ways being abused from him. So that's really where that second part comes in. The evaluating really comes into taking a good look at what you have, feeling that pain, and then evaluating that trauma. My guest from Connecticut, Jason Romano, uh, we're talking about his book, Live to Forgive. Uh, Jason, the... um, third part that I want you to explain to us is transforming the wound. In other words, feeling the pain, evaluating the trauma, and now you get into transforming the wound. Uh, Explain that. Yeah. So again, these steps are all what I believe has helped me in terms of eventually coming to a point where I can forgive someone who's hurt me. And so the first two, feeling the pain, they've got to acknowledge that that's there and evaluating what's happened. Then the third part is transforming this wound. So we need to transform, especially as, as people of faith, believers in Christ, who I am. You know, that whole transforming uh, is something that's written in Romans. It, it talks about our mind being transformed. Well, when we get hurt by someone, especially someone that we love or is close to us, 
um, there's a wound there. And for many of us, for myself, that wound ran very deep. And being able to transform that, if it's not properly transformed, it turns into a very unhealthy way of responding. For myself, with my dad, I'll give you an example. Um, there's a, a chapter in the book called Those Dreaded Phone Calls. And for my dad and myself, for many years, we had a relationship that was pretty much strictly based on phone calls because he was in one part of upstate New York and I was over in Connecticut and we didn't see each other much. So phone calls were really the only way that we would communicate. He wasn't much of a texter. He wasn't much of a, of a technology guy, uh, an email guy. So it was pretty much just talking to him on the phone. And there were many times when he would call and he would call very drunk and he would have very um, hurtful, very abusive things to say about myself, about my family. And if I didn't transform this pain into something that was healthy, I was just going to turn around and lash right, right back out at him. And I did that. I wanted him to feel the anger and the bitterness that I felt. And that's unhealthy. You know, that's, that's a revenge factor. That's just not the way we, we need to look at when we're trying to transform the wound. And transforming the wound, what it really means is transforming our pain and learning to suffer well which is very difficult to do. Uh, I think as believers, we talk about that a lot in our, in, in our faith walk, but it's not easy. But it's suffering well uh, and resolving this pain in a way that can um, bring joy. You know, cer- certainly searching the Scriptures and going to church and things like that. Um, but transforming the pain into something healthy. Like for me, I would transform it into my job. Uh, and going into uh, an opportunity to work at ESPN, which was in many ways a dream job for me, you know, I would transform it there. I would transform this pain into raising uh, a daughter in the way that I wanted her to experience that was completely the opposite of the way I experienced. You know, being a good husband, um, being a good brother to my two brothers, a good, a good son to my mom, like things like that is how I would transform uh, this wound, because if it's not transformed properly, it really can lead to some unhealthy, unhealthy habits, and and really make the relationship even more strained. <clears throat> Jason, <clears throat> excuse me. Jason Romano is our guest. We're talking about his book, "Live to Forgive." More with Jason right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's uh, ninety-four point nine FM, folks, and AM nine fifty. The Word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word. Attention credit card holders. The secret that credit card companies don't want you to know is getting out. Thousands of people across the country are now settling their debts for a fraction of what they owe, thanks to National Debt Relief. The secret is that if you're struggling with or simply can't afford your monthly credit card payments, you now have the legal means to resolve your debt with your lenders, substantially reducing what you owe into one low monthly payment. You don't have to worry about bankruptcy or falling deeper into debt. You can now save thousands of dollars, even tens 
tens of thousands and be debt-free faster than you ever thought possible. There are no upfront fees and satisfaction is guaranteed. If you're struggling with at least $10,000 in credit card debt, medical bills, private student loans, or personal loans, call National Debt Relief now for a free quote on how much of your debt can be reduced. Get this free life-changing information now by dialing 800-506-2760. 800-506-2760. That's 800-506-2760. Walking down the street one day, you encounter a man. He is dressed in white patent leather shoes with silver side buckles and dark brown socks. His trousers are burnt orange bell bottoms. Wrapped provocatively around the elastic waistband is a harvest gold utility belt with a large Elvis commemorative buckle. His shirt is avocado green with the name Lou embroidered just above one pocket. And suddenly it hits you. This has to be the guy who designed and decorated your kitchen. You resist the impulse to confront him and instead call Gold Key Cabinetry at 407-232-7144. Gold Key Cabinetry will design, custom build, and install the kitchen of your dreams. No matter how large or small, Gold Key Cabinetry can take your dream from paper to reality. But don't take our word for it. See what their customers have to say about them. Log on at goldkeycabinetry.com. Gold Key Cabinetry has been serving Central Florida for over 34 years. Call today for your free estimate, 407-232-7144. Online at goldkeycabinetry.com. From dream kitchen to reality with Gold Key Cabinetry. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word. Now, once again, here's Pat. Uh, Jason Romano, who for 17 years was an ESPN producer, uh, he's with us talking about his book, Live to Forgive. Uh, Jason, we've arrived at part four. You just talked to us about transforming the wound. And now uh, the fourth part says forgiving the abuser. Uh, I'm interested in what's happening at this point in this book. Yeah, um, Pat, forgiving the abuse of the abuser is the the culmination of where we're going with this book, where I've gone with my life, with my experience, with my dad. You know, that's obviously what we're what we're striving for here is forgiveness, living to forgive. Right, the book lives to forgive, but that's also the hardest part because um, when we get hurt. We often want, like I said, revenge. Um, but when we look at it from a, from, especially for myself, when I look at it from a biblical point of view, God wants us to forgive every single time that we've been hurt. Every time. It's, it's, it's in Scripture. Uh, in, in Ephesians 4, Paul talks about um, forgiving those who have hurt us. It's right there. Uh, the clear notion of, of Jesus talking in the Gospels in Matthew 18 about uh you know, how many times am I supposed to forgive, Peter asks him, and he says 70 times 7, meaning every single time. So we're called as Christians, uh, and I know maybe some of your audience isn't Christian, and that's okay, but we're called as Christians to forgive every single time. So for me, that's the first thing I had to look at as a believer was, okay, God is commanding us to do this, and if I'm supposed to be Christ-like, then I, see, I need to forgive. But it's the hardest part, and it, but it's the most important part, too. But what I've discovered, Pat, in forgiving the abuser is, for myself, with the story with my dad, was I finally looked at it from his point of view. You know, that's the definition in my, per, my terms, not the, the official definition of the word empathy. When I'm able to have empathy towards my father, finally able to have that empathy toward him at his lowest point in his life, I looked at it from his point of view and said, man, God looks at my dad just like he looks at me, whether I'm successful in the world's eyes and having a job at ESPN or 
you know, trying to be a good husband and, and, and a good dad, uh, having, you know, a house and, and whatever, you know, having all this earthly sort of worldly stuff, you know, and then looking at my dad who had lost it all and was struggling and was depressed and drinking and just a mess and had lost everything. But in God's eyes, we're equal. He looks at him and he looks at me on the same playing field. And when we get to that point, that's when we can truly look at others with empathy and say, you know what, I can forgive that person. That doesn't necessarily mean they get off the hook for what they did. That doesn't mean that if they did something illegal that they don't have to pay the consequences for that. But what it means is forgiveness is, is not about the other person. Forgiveness is about ourselves. There's a great quote in the book. It says, forgiveness sets a prisoner free, and that prisoner we discover when we do forgive is us. And that's what forgiveness is truly all about. Forgiving the abuser as, as the fourth part is really finally getting to a point where we realize it's not about the other person. It's about us, and it's about us choosing, because it is a choice, to forgive. Uh, Jason, <clears throat> what's become of your dad? My dad is still alive. Uh, there was a moment where I didn't think he was going to make it. Uh, about five years ago. He's still alive. Uh, he struggled for 40-plus years drinking, but I'm happy to say, uh, and it's kind of the happy ending in the book, that he has now been sober. It'll be five years in June uh, that he has taken his last drink, and so he's doing very well. Uh, he's got a long ways to go. Our relationship is not perfect. It's still a little awkward. Uh, he, it's what I call repair mode, I guess, Pat, in that sense, but he's doing well. Um, and our relationship has been able to be reconciled. And I, not every relationship, when we forgive someone, is reconciled. Uh, it's just impossible. Uh, but in our case, uh, it was, you know, God was, was faithful in, in, in all the prayers that I had, and he's allowed us to be able to reconcile and, uh, and have somewhat of a relationship, which is, which is a very good thing. Oh, what does he think of this book? You know, I was, it's a great question because I, I wasn't going to write this book because I never really wanted to write any book, to be honest with you. I know when you and I talked on my podcast, I was so amazed that you've written 108 of them and how difficult it was for me to just write one book. Uh, but I didn't want to write this unless I got his kind of sign off. Um, at the time when we started thinking about writing the book, he was still sober. Uh, he had been a couple years sober and he was doing well. Um, but, uh, you know, you never know. And I said to him, I said, listen, I think a book here could really help a lot of people if we tell them our story a little bit, but we'd have to be as transparent as we can in telling the story. So it's going to get ugly. There's going to get a lot. There's going to be a lot of like terrible memories. There might even be some memories that you don't know about, but we got to write this. Uh, but I need your, your sign off on this. And he said something I'll never forget, Pat. He said, Jay, if you're going to write this book, you got to do it because if it can help one person, then then there there is the reason. Like if it can help one person, you have to write this book. So we wrote it, and when he read it, uh, he called me right away and apologized again. Uh, and he he was so sorry for what uh, what he had caused me and my brothers, the pain that he had caused. And uh, and I told him he would already apologized and he didn't need to. But I think the book really opened his eyes to see it from my point of view. And walking through this process really helped me see it from his point of view. So I think, I think that's been the real neat thing about the book is it's not only helping people learn to forgive, but it's helping people who've struggled with the pain that they've caused others to see it from another side, too. Uh, Jason, were you ever uh, tempted to drink? You know, Pat, I, when I was young, the answer is no. Uh, when I was young, I chose, I was one of the few, my brothers both drank, 
um, and they got kind of caught up in the party scene and all that. Um, I didn't grow up, you know, with a faith or anything like that, um, so I just kind of did the normal kid thing, teenager thing, but I never went to parties, and I was always uh, scared, to be quite honest with you, of turning into my dad, so I made a point not to drink. Uh, so I've never been drunk my whole life. Uh, again, that doesn't have anything to do with sort of morality or trying to uh, be a good person or even, you know, trying to, um, you, you know, go deeper in my face. Not that there's anything wrong with having a glass of wine or a beer on occasion. But for me, I just saw what my dad had become, and I didn't want to be that person. And I knew that the only reason he had become that person was because of alcohol. So I chose not to drink. So I'm very grateful to God for that. What were your years at ESPN like? What did they mean to you? They meant a lot. Uh, in all my you know, dreams growing up as a kid, a big, huge, giant sports fan, uh, I never dreamed big enough to even think that I could get to ESPN. Uh, so getting there meant a lot. Um, as I got there and sort of the, the newness um, wore off in the sense of you know, the awestruck wonder that I guess I had of being at ESPN, uh, I still loved my job and I loved going to work every day, um, serving sports fans and having uh, so much fun. But it meant a lot because of the relationships. It meant a lot because of the opportunities. You know, it meant a lot to spend a day with Daryl Strawberry. Are you kidding me? I, I would, if you just told me that would be the only day I'd ever work at ESPN, that would have been enough. Uh, but to do it for 16, almost 17 years and work with great people like Mike and Mike and, and work on the great shows like SportsCenter and great products like the NFL, uh, I mean, come on. Uh, you know, there's lines of being the luckiest guy in the world, right? Bill Walton says that. Uh, but that's true. I really, I really was, uh, com- you know, blessed beyond measure, and they mean so much to me. And honestly, my next venture in leaving ESPN could not have happened if I wasn't there for so many years. So I'm greatly appreciative for the opportunity and for the blessing that I was to able to work there. What are you doing now, Jason? So about a year ago, I left ESPN uh, on my own, kind of took a leap of faith, if you will. Uh, and I am now working with a ministry called Sports Spectrum. Uh, where we host uh, a podcast, which you were grateful and gracious to come on. Uh, and we tell the stories of sports and faith. Uh, there's a lot of great sports fans out there who have a very strong faith. There's a lot of athletes who have very strong faith. And there isn't a lot of platforms out there to tell those stories. Um, so we felt like there was a void, but there also was an appetite for this kind of content. And so I made the choice to leave and kind of do more for the Lord by telling these stories. Uh, I'm also... You know, we wrote the book, so that's allowed for, for some opportunities to share and speak around the country, and uh, also doing some consulting work and kind of giving back to all the different production uh, experience that I got at ESPN and being able to help others. So it's been a blast. Uh, it was certainly scary to leave the comforts of a place like ESPN, but God has been faithful, and it's been a, it's been a great journey thus far. What do you want people to take <clears throat> from your book, Live to Forgive, Jason? I want them to know, uh, believer or not, you know, wherever your faith is, uh, or if you don't even have a faith, that's okay in this, in this sense. Forgiveness, unforgiveness is a universal trait. We all suffer. We all struggle with it. I want people to know that there's freedom in forgiving. I want people to know that they can actually make this choice to forgive and see something happen in their lives that they didn't think could happen. Um, Not necessarily on the reconciliation side, but from the freedom side and understanding that they don't have to be bitter, they don't have to be angry, and that, like the subtitle says in the book, they can actually move forward when those that they love hurt them. That's what I want them to take away from this book, that there is hope and there's freedom. Jason, in addition 
to Daryl Strawberry's forward, another great Met, uh, Dwight Gooden, uh, the great pitcher. He did a blurb for your book. Uh, Tell me about these two guys and the struggles that they have been through in their life with addiction. Yeah, I mean, these are, if you go back to 12-year-old Jason in the in the mid-'80s, Daryl Strawberry and Dwight Gooden are the guys. I, I'm, a, I'm a huge Mets fan, still am today, and that all dates back to those two guys. Uh, Dwight Gooden in 1984, Daryl Strawberry in 1983, they came up. They were, you know, sort of intertwined as the, the great hopes for the Mets, and they both led, um, you know, an amazing squad to the World Series and a lot of winning years, but they also had a lot of struggles. And as a 15-year-old boy, I wasn't seeing or paying attention to those struggles because I just wanted to watch them play baseball. But when you get to know them, which I've gotten the, the great pleasure of getting to know both of them, Daryl, of course, as I mentioned, and Dwight uh, was with a very similar kind of story of coming to ESPN and getting to spend time with them, I realized that they're humans who struggle, and they struggle with family, they struggled with um, they struggle with uh, marriages, with addiction, with drinking, with uh, alcohol, cocaine, um, drugs, all sorts of things, um, infidelity, everything, and lost it all and spent long, long hours and days and weeks and months in jail um, hitting the pits of despair. And so I've learned from them now that I see them both in their 50s, you know, and I'm a 44-year-old 40, man myself, and I look at it from a completely different point of view, and I see, you know, redemption stories for these guys, both guys, as far as I know right now. I know Daryl's out there basically traveling as an evangelist, preaching God's Word, and, and Doc, I've talked to Dwight Gooden a couple times in the process of this book and recently, and he's been sober and, and trying to do well and do right with his family. So I see stories of redemption. I see stories of hope. I see stories of of because this, this addiction problem is a real epidemic in this country, as is the forgiveness problem. And I believe that people just need to see that there is a way out. And from Daryl and Doc, first of all, for them to be able to be a part of my book is an incredible thing. But I learned so much about them, or about my dad through them, and their story, and their willingness to share it, their willingness to be self, selfless and serving uh, in telling their story, you know, Dwight Gooden had, I wrote about this, had a, a time when he called my dad. Mm. And that was crazy to me. He asked me, he said, can I have your dad's number? I want to call him. This was in my dad's really bad, bad moments about five, six years ago. And I said, sure, Dwight, that's great. And I had to call my dad to tell him that Dwight Gooden was going to call him so he didn't think it was some crazy person when <laughs> Dwight Gooden's on the other end. But he called him, and he encouraged him, and that meant the world to me at a point when my, my relationship with my dad was in a very, very rough spot. Um, so these guys mean so much more to me now than they ever did as a 15-year-old kid rooting for them and wearing their jerseys and you know, collecting their baseball cards. Now it's a whole different story. We're talking about life. We're not just talking about sports. Jason, uh, what is your position with your children uh, about teaching them about alcohol? Yeah, originally, Pat, uh, and I just have one daughter, uh, but I also have you know a ton of nieces and nephews and been able to talk to them as well. Um, I teach my daughter, um, you know, I, I think first we lead by example. You know, my wife and I don't drink. There's no alcohol in the house. Um, even for people who want to drink and come over, they're not going to see that alcohol here. Um, so we lead by example that way. Um, as she was younger, I was very protective of her about my dad's story. 
Uh, as she's gotten older, she's 14 uh, soon. In about two months, she'll be 14 years old. She's old enough now. So I tell her, uh, you know, I certainly shared the book with her. She hasn't, she has an apprehensiveness about reading it, I think, right now, um, which is interesting and a whole other thing we can explore at another time. But My guest has been Jason Romano. His book, Live to Forgive. Uh, we've got more after this uh, right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. Word. Now, once again, here's Pat. Jason Romano, our guest in that first segment, uh, talking about his book, Live to Forgive. Uh, Donna Howell joins us um, from her home in Missouri. Uh, managing editor for Defender Publishing, and author of The Handmaiden's Conspiracy. Uh, Donna, thanks so much for joining me. I hope you're doing well, and uh, looking forward to our chat here. Thank you for having me on. I am doing well today. Uh, The Handmaiden's Conspiracy. Uh, First of all, there are eight chapters in this book, Donna, that I want to cover with you. But first of all, explain to me uh, the the book and explain to me this incredible picture on the front cover of a zipper across a lady's lips. Yeah, we had a we actually designed that cover probably eight or ten times before we finally settled on that imagery. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the imagery is of a zipper basically being um, unzipped, so it it suggests that um, it is uh, uh, liberation for a woman's equal rights in church leadership is occurring at that moment. Uh, You open your book with a chapter called The Cultural Interpretation Debate. Uh, Can you explain that? Yes. Um, So the cultural interpretation debate is, is that, you know, many, many people who have it who are against the idea of equality and mutuality for women's leadership in church continue to uh they 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 say the bible says what it says and it means what it means and we can't change that and we cannot look at the bible through a 21st century lens and say just because we have um equal political and social rights in America that now we have to suddenly erase everything that Paul said about women being silent in the church and that she should not be allowed to teach the ter- in the church or usurp the authority of men of the man um and that and that we we should never allow our uh, um our current uh culture to be what interprets a verse just because Joyce Meyer is a preacher does not mean it's okay for a woman to be a preacher and whereas i completely and emphatically agree with that statement because the minute that that we start reading the Bible through a 21st century lens, we can twist Scripture to uh, back up anything we want to say. So I agree with that. However, this is a thing that gets lost in that argument immediately, and that is you cannot divorce a verse from the culture it was written in. So, in other words, you have to be willing to say, uh, there's another. There's it's. There's an exegetical principle called the principle of internal consistency, and what that means is if the Bible prohibits something over there, over here, but it allows for it over there, then there is a key. There, there's a key missing because the Bible will not and cannot contradict itself. 
So, for instance, just giving you a for instance that everyone will will recognize immediately, the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus all give uh, under uh, give the law for how we are to sacrifice animals on the altar. And then the book of Hebrews reverses that and says that Jesus was a sacrifice once and for all. So when the Bible prohibits something somewhere and allows for it somewhere else, we have to be able to look into the internal consistency and find why is that the case. And in the case of Paul, he openly referred to many women as leaders of the church, many of them. And they were uh, commended for their roles in the early church. But we have to be able to look at the culture and the Greek. So the inter- the uh, the debate about looking something, looking at a verse through a cultural lens is everybody says, no, just because Joyce Meyer is a preacher or, you know, insert another female preacher here is a preacher doesn't mean that women can be preachers. So, yes, we should agree. But also we should agree that you can't. If, if another woman was a preacher in the New Testament, such as many that I could mention, uh, and and female leaders began churches in the homes of women, all found in the Bible, such as Mary, uh, Mark's John Mark's mother Mary in Jerusalem, Lydia in Philippi, Priscilla in Ephesus, Rome, and likely Corinth, Phoebe in Centria. If you look at the Greek that's actually referring to these women and the things that he called them, the Greek words, not the English words. For instance, with Phoebe, we get. Uh, that she was a servant. He calls her he calls her diakonos in Greek. That word means deacon, but it also is the male variant of the word. It means male deacon, basically. Well, why would Paul ever call a woman a male deacon? Because he, in that culture, if there's diakonos and diakonesa, which means male and female, he would have referred to her as the female if she was only allowed to rise to the office of a woman. But he actually went as far as to call her diakonos, which means deacon equal to a male in her case, and it got translated into English as servant. So the question is, yes, I mean, the answer is, yes, we we shouldn't view the Bible through the 21st century lens, but we really should be allowed to view it through a century lens that belongs to the original culture in which these things were written in. So, Donna, you just explained in opening the book with the cultural interpretation debate. Then you move to the next topic, which is called internal consistency. Uh, What are your thoughts here? Internal consistency, again, that means if the, bo- if the word says this is prohibited over here, but it's allowed over here, you have to be able to find out why is it prohibited over here and allowed over here. And in those cases, there's always a key that unlocks why there was a specific prohibition for a specific people in a specific time. In most cases in the Bible, it's either due to a spiritual cancellation of a principle, such as uh, animals being crucified, and then, I mean, not crucified, sorry, uh, uh, given upon the altar, and then Jesus is cruci- being crucified for all, being the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, that was a cancellation um, because of the what Jesus brought to the table spiritually in, in liberation for, for redemption. Uh, but there's just, for instance, you know, you have to be, the, the internal consistency says that if Paul, is calling women leaders of the church, and he's commending them for what they do. And if 
God, the Father, is creating a woman to be a connecto ezer in the Garden of Eden, which means uh, that Adam is not complete without her, is what that basically means. And, and, and if the Holy Spirit is liberating women on the day of Pentecost to go out and, and, and be equal among the men in preaching because there were women in the upper room that day. And if Jesus Christ liberated a woman in Sychar in Samaria to run around and preach, and he sat there for two days watching her do this, and he chose not to run after her and say, hey, stop stop preaching, leave the theology to the men, then you've got Paul, the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all allowing for a woman to preach and teach. So, if that is allowed in all these places, why is it prohibited over here? That is the, the principle of internal consistency. There has to be a reason why in 1 Corinthians and in 1 Timothy, Paul was silencing specific women. That is the rule of the principle of internal consistency. Well, now that you mentioned uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, explain to us the context of 1 Corinthians that you write about. So a tiny bit of background. There's a, there's a lot of, of, of research invo- involved in the book that, uh, regarding the, agent, the ancient pagan influences of the cities of Corinth and Ephesus. These cultures were astoundingly opposed to the values of Christianity while Paul was first establishing the churches there. So you have these temples, and the pagan prostitute temples were employing thousands of women at a time to offer their bodies to men in spiritual kind of orgiastic rituals that these cultures believed brought people closer to the God. So the level of spiritual chaos and theological chaos occurring in the fledgling Christian churches around the time of Corinthians and, and uh, Corinth and Ephesus. Uh, it's based on, on how many times Paul actually, in both of those books, had to address it in his, in his epistles. He, he addressed uh, sexual immorality, incest, all kinds of things, um, prostitution, <clears throat> all of those things that he addressed. But specifically in 1 Corinthians 14.34, he in in his in he 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 said that the that women are not permitted to speak in the church now if we look at english and not only english as it was translated from greek into english old uh old english but also how we translate old english kjv english into modern day english we arrive at this concept that says either one of two things Number one, a woman is not allowed to speak in church at all, meaning the minute her body enters the church, she is now silenced until she leaves again. That cannot be the case, because in 1 Corinthians 11.5, Paul gave instructions for how a woman is to pray and prophesy in a church. So it can't mean a literal silencing. The other one that we tend to hear a lot about is that it means she's not allowed to preach or teach or whatever. But here's the thing that a lot of people miss about that. Paul had 30 words to choose from when he said speak in 1 Corinthians 14.34. The one he chose to reference was the Greek word laleo. Not only does it just mean talk, it also means keep talking because it's being used in its present tense. So really... Uh, because it's not being used in its common aorus tense, the Greek structure in this verse needs to be uh, rendered more accurately 
whereas it was accurate at the time of the KJV to say speak in a church because they would have understood it differently at that time, and then it was misunderstood and perpetuated to mean a teaching or preaching style by what should be considered an oppressive patriarchal society for the last 2,000 years against women in church in certain denominations. We need to give that verse the credit that it's due in Greek. It means that women are not supposed to keep talking in church. It's, it's, a, it's a verse against disruption. That's the bottom line. Now, the reason, by the way, yes. the reason why that was such an important uh, thing to address is because these women believed that their bodies were kind of a conduit to the gods. See, they they were giving themselves in prostitution to bless the men because the men couldn't reach the gods without their bodies. This is what they believed. So when Christianity came along, there was this warped Christianity that suggested that men uh, weren't really allowed to connect with this new Jesus Messiah fellow unless they had a woman's blessing or a woman's sexual offering, or that's the kind of questions they were working out. So women were disrupting the services back then. Uh, now I want you to talk about the context of First Timothy. That's your next subject. Yeah, that one is a lot more difficult. Uh, but First Timothy two eleven through twelve. This this is a here's. I, I, I get kind of frustrated about this one a lot because, see, in 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 10, Paul talks about how a woman is not allowed to go to church with her hair in a braid. Now, today, we look at that. Every Christian that I've ever known that has ever read that verse, they look at that and immediately cut it off and say it doesn't apply to today. It's a cultural issue. It must, whether they know the, the real truth behind the Greek or not, they say it must have just been a cultural issue. We need to not worry about what Paul actually had to say over there because it doesn't apply to our day and time because it's braided hair. I mean, that's, that's amazing. Why would anybody care about that? But two verses later, they will not allow that. They will not allow consistent treatment. If, if, if t- 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 10 about braided hair is a cultural issue, then 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12, two verses later, should also be allowed to be a cultural issue because of the fact that it is written by the same author to the same people in the same book and in the same context. So that's an issue that I have with there. First of all, the braided hair, it's a difference. Uh, it, it, it's not braided hair and gold jewelry or whatever. It's actually uh, the difference uh, between um, Greek A and Kai, and it gets confused a lot in modern, modern, modern translations, but he's saying don't wear your hair in a braid with gold in it. The reason why is because these temple prostitutes would braid their hair up into a, a elaborate braid, and they wove little gold jewels into their hair. Because Hippocratic medicine at the time acknowledged hair to be um, a very sexual organ displayed openly um, because they believed this is gross, but they believed that human hair was uh, congealed body fluids. So a woman prostitute, uh, and this is all documented in the book. This is ancient documents, text. This is, this is not just Donna Howell says, but that's what they believed at the time. Donna Howell is our guest. <clears throat> Her book, The Handmaiden's Conspiracy. Uh, we've got more with Donna Howe from Missouri right after these messages on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. 
More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word. From Pure Flix and the executive producer of Braveheart comes The Dating Project. What is dating? Um, dating is cool. Dating is officially dead. The Dating Project in theaters Tuesday, April 17th only. It's like single, married, and then there's extra single, and that's the one that I would check off. There's no script. There are no actors. These are real people trying to find love in the age of swiping left or right. The Dating Project in theaters April 17th only. More information is available at thedatingprojectmovie.com. Are you ready for an inspiring story that reminds us we're never too young to make an impact? Phoenix, over here! Phoenix Wilder and the Great Elephant Adventure. Nothing can stop us! An orphan boy, Phoenix Wilder, befriends a giant elephant on the African savanna and defeats poachers. This boy will bring us a huge ransom. Let me go. One night only at a theater near you this Monday night. Phoenix Wilder and the Great Elephant Adventure. Rated G. Click phoenixwilder.com. This is Dennis McKenzie for Families by Design. Strong families are designed by God. Do you want your family designed by God? For inspirational principles for today's families, listen to Families by Design with your hosts, Dr. Daniel Forbes and Kevin Picorni. Families by Design airs every Sunday at 9 p.m. That's Families by Design right here, 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. What is your history? Hello, this is Alan Treba, owner of American Family Funerals and Cremations and a servant. My wife is a direct descendant of Simon the Fox of Fraser Clan of Lovett in Scotland. I always tell her jokingly that I am King of Spain and Emperor of the World. I feel so privileged to be able to help families remember a loved one in a special way. This gives us the opportunity to get to know part of your history. You know us, we're family. American Family Funerals and Cremations, 407 339 you're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word. Now, once again, here's Pat. Donna Howell is our guest. Uh, we're talking about her book, The Handmaiden's Conspiracy. Uh, Donna, I want you to uh, uh, get into this next topic that you write about. Uh, the women Jesus knew. You do a whole chapter on that, don't you? I did a whole chapter on that, yes. Um, bringing to a close, uh, we were speaking a moment ago about First Timothy 2, 11 through 12. So I'll bring that to a close quickly. The woman being silenced there, it is not all women. It is one troubled woman uh, being silenced there. She is trying to correct a man. We know this because the uh, it goes from singular to plural and singular to plural. The woman, uh, the kind of teaching, didascine, that she is being silenced from giving is uh, defined by the, the words that are uh, translated into usurp the authority of a man. That comes from the Greek authentine, and that means hostile takeover. So a woman is allowed to preach the gospel today. The woman, the woman, singular, in Corinth was being silenced because she was aggressively taking over and uh, uh, to, to, to one man. So that's bringing closure to that. As far as Jesus, he, he, there's a million little moments throughout his life that he liberates women. First of all, the temple was segregated. The men over here to learn theology, the women over here to play with the kids. Jesus walked right into the, the women's 
part of the of the temple courts and and taught them theology. We also know there are moments when he is teaching about you know his beliefs and his father and his relationship with his father with uh, 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 theological undertones to Mary and Martha at their house, and Martha is running around you know seeing to the domestic chores that a woman would have been expected to during the day, and Jesus sees. Uh, that it's actually Mary's in her rightful place at his feet learning theology. And when Martha comes and says, Jesus, make this woman follow me around and, and help me with the chores, he says, oh, Martha, Martha, you know, calm down. Mary's doing what she should be doing right now, learning theology. But the Jews at the time, in the Mishnah uh, and the Talmud writings, we have all kinds of documents where the Jews would actually say daily prayers saying, thank you for not making me a woman. They also had very disgusting ways of referring to a woman, such as a woman is, a pit- is nothing but a pitcher of filth whose mouth is covered in blood. These are the kinds of writings that they saw, uh, that they referred to women. They also had one that said, I would rather put the Torah, meaning the first, you know, the, the, the Old Testament, I would rather put the Torah in the, in, in the fire than to put it in the hands of a woman. They didn't believe, not for a second. The Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, the Jews of Jesus' day and prior did not believe that it was okay to teach a woman theology, and yet Jesus did it all the time. He goes to Samaria and meets the woman at the well in Sychar, and they're talking theology. And then she basically, in that moment, first of all, understand that he, he had never yet in his life told anyone he was the Son of God. The first time ever that he tells someone that he is the Son of God was the woman at the well in Sychar. She takes that information, and she runs all over the city, preaching about who he is and bringing the crowds to Jesus. He had two days. The Bible said he stayed in Sychar for two days. He had two days to run after her and say, you're doing the wrong thing. This is, this, you're supposed to leave the theology to the men. It's a male's job to preach. But instead, he actually followed, he followed her around and allowed I mean, she, she followed the people in, her, in their town around and brought them to him, and he allowed this. And for two days, he watched it happen. And that, I apologize, that story actually came from uh, the next chapter, the, the woman Jesus sent. But yeah, yeah he, knew a lot of, he knew a lot of women from the Old Testament, too, that well, were leaders. Uh, Donna, tell us about that next chapter, the women Jesus sent. Uh, is there more you want to tell us? Well, I... I kind of got them flipped in my head. I started by telling you about the chapter, The Women Jesus Sent. I'll tell you just briefly, The Women Jesus Knew, first of all, it starts with, it starts with, Conegdo uh, Ezer. In the Garden of Eden, Eve was created as Conegdo Ezer. That means, uh, uh, first of all, David wrote in the Psalms, Psalms 121, I look to the hills from whence cometh my Ezer. The word Ezer means helper. That's why it's translated when the, when for Eve, a helper met, uh, fit for Adam. But it's used uh, 16 to 20 times throughout that same area of Scripture in reference to God himself, not to suggest any kind of crazy feminist theology that says that a woman has created God. That is not what I'm saying. But that God was 
the, the one who owned the word Azer most of the time. Well, what does that mean? That means that, yes, it, it, it also translates helper, but it translates powerful helper, wise counselor, somebody who completes the other half. Whatever Adam was without her, he was incomplete. She was a match for him. She was connecto, meaning equal to, corresponding to. So the, the Garden of Eden, Jesus knew of Eve because he read of her. And then you've got Deborah in the Old Testament. She was not only a prophet of the Old Testament, she was a judge, meaning that she had not only exhortation authority as a prophet, word of exhortation, a prophet uh, over the entire nation of God. She also had judicial, uh, legal, binding authority over everybody in the Old Testament. So if God, either God is inconsistent, and he says in one place, that a woman cannot be a leader over my people. And in another place, he says, she can be a leader over my people. And God is inconsistent, unstable in all of his own ways, Paul wrote. <laughs> Paul, I mean, Paul wrote that not in regards to God, but either that describes the character of God, or we have to say that what was being prohibited in Paul's writings was a, a specific cultural matter. So those were the women that Jesus knew, and there's others in there listed, even down to his own mother, misconceptions of Mary Magdalene being a prostitute, and she wasn't. There was a lot in that area of the book. Donna, you do a chapter called Created He Them. Uh, You're going to have to explain that to us. Created He Them. First of all, in in the chapter, the women that Jesus knew, we did discuss the Created He Them verse. So by the time we get to the chapter created he them the, the chapter is is committed to discussing real balance between roles see feminism and I'm not suggesting this is every feminist out there I'm suggesting that this is pop culture feminism doctrine suggests that in order for us to be equal to men we have to debase men or be the same as them but see sameness is not the same as equality. Feminism not only debases men, it denies what is intrinsically feminine and nurturing about a woman. So the idea uh, in ultimate equality and mutuality that the Bible is absolutely filled with, including uh, that a, um, a yes, a woman should submit to her husband, but Ephesians 5.21 speaks of mutual submission. The man should try to submit to the woman as well. There's, there's a harmony, a balance to the roles. We should, nobody should be trying to put down and take over the other. Nobody should rule the other. In the Garden of Eden, it was very, it was very clear, created he them, and they were to rule alongside and have dominion over the earth. They. It was never he, and then she helps. It was they together. And Jesus even, in my chapter I mentioned, Jesus even made that clear that later on, when he was being asked about relationships between men and women and marriage and harmony uh, between the sexes in the book of Matthew, he had two creation orders he could have quoted from. The, pri- the, the pre-fall order of man and woman in the garden of, uh, I mean, in uh, the book of Genesis, or the post-fall, meaning the product of sin. And in the book of Matthew, he quotes from the pre-fall ideal and says, this is what a relationship ought to be. Why would he do that if a woman was always supposed to be subject to a man? And why do we continue to look at what happened with the fall and say 
that because of the curses that fell upon Adam and Eve, that now all women, all times, are supposed to consistently be subject to um, a, a ruling, like a dictatorship-type marriage with her husband. That is not what God designed. He designed perfection in the book of Genesis before the fall, and later when Jesus is questioned, he quotes from the perfection before the fall. My guest, Donna Howell. Uh, we've run out of time, folks. We're back for a wrap-up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. Legal representation is often about personal values. Hello, I'm Karen Eastry, attorney. For probate, estate planning, divorce, adoption, guardianship, issues concerning children and the aged, call me at the law offices of Alper and Eastry at 407-869-0900. I am a lawyer who not only speaks for you, I share your values with the experience, energy, and enthusiasm to represent you effectively. My ultimate goal is to help you reach a satisfactory conclusion to your legal problems, to find peace, and to be able to move on with your life. Call me, Karen Eastry, at 407-869-0900 or visit my firm's website, altamontlaw.com. My office is conveniently located in Altamont Springs, close to I-4. So call today to make sure you have someone by your side at 407-869-0900. Offices, Altamont Springs. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word. Now, once again, here's Pat. Thanks for joining us, folks. We're here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, In the first segment, Jason Romano from his home in Connecticut uh, talked about his book, Live to Forgive. And then uh, from Missouri, where Donna Howell resides, uh, we talked about her book, The Handmaiden's Conspiracy. Uh, please visit my website. It's patwilliams.com, uh, the Twitter page, Orlando Magic Pat. And uh, you might want to check out my most recent book. It's called Coach Wooden's Forgotten Teams. Uh, look at John Wooden and his summer camps. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, it's in bookstores now. And uh, Amazon uh, and barnesandnoble.com, wonderful way to order books as well. Uh, Have a great day tomorrow in church with your family and a good week ahead. And we'll be back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at the same time where faith comes by hearing. 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.